Film Jive is made possible by Audible, the world's largest selection of audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on January 11th, 2015. My name is Zach. And I'm Gaddy. Uh, some listeners may recognize Gary may recognize Gary from appearing as a, a guest on several episodes in, in the past. At, at this point, Gary will kind of be joining Andy and I on the show whenever he can make time to do so, which I'm very excited about. So, Gary, thank you for joining me. It's wonderful to have you. Oh, thanks for asking me. Good to be here. So this is episode number 88, where we are discussing Francois Truffaut's 1971 romantic drama released by Janus Films, Two English Girls, starring Jean-Pierre Leo, Kika Markham, and Stacey Tendetter. Gary, would you please read the plot synopsis? Claude, a young art critic, meets Anne Brown, a young Englishwoman in Paris. The two quickly become friends, and Anne invites him to spend the holidays at her house, where she lives with her mother and sister, Muriel. During the visit, Claude and Muriel believe they have fallen in love. They want to marry, but both families refuse. Insisting upon a one-year separation without any contact before agreeing to the marriage, Claude returns to Paris, but is followed by Anne, and they eventually begin a sexual relationship that passes for a time as love. Meanwhile, Muriel remains passionately in love with Claude, nearly having an emotional breakdown when she learns that he no longer plans to marry her. So, now, as I understand Two English Girls in relation to... Uh... I guess Truffaut's history, it seems to be a part of a, a period in his career where maybe some of the, the critical and commercial enthusiasm for his films had waned to some degree. And it's interesting because in retrospect, this film seems to have obtained an almost cult-like status among his fans who claim this to be one of one of his forgotten, his, his finest works. So I'm curious, Gary, in, in what Truffaut had described himself as a eulogy to life, if you agree that Two English Girls is a forgotten classic or rightfully forgotten. Um, I guess I'd have to say rightfully forgotten. It, it was an enjoyable watch. I'd never seen it before. Um, but I can't get enthused about it to say anything more than it was pleasant. I get a kind of overwhelming feeling of just mediocrity with uh, a lot of Truffaut's films post Jules and Jim. Yeah, and this one kind of just confirmed those feelings. On show, he's definitely a skilled director, a talented director, but it feels like he really, I don't know, I don't really know what he's trying to say. It, it's very kind of vapid to me, very bland. Um, it, it doesn't really affect me in any way as an experience. don't know about you. 
I, I think I w- what I was most surprised about the movie was how physical I found it to be. I, I know Truffaut described it as, as wanting to make a film, that, a physical film about love, but I guess I just wasn't prepared for, at least I feel, the, the, some of the violence of his imagery. I don't tip, when I think of Truffaut, I don't typically think of him as being a very physical filmmaker, and maybe that's a misinterpretation. I haven't seen all of his films. But I don't think his films are typically reliant on physical performance. I mean, gestures, the caressing of the cheek is probably the most prominent physical image that occurs throughout his filmography. But physical struggle isn't something that I that I generally think of. Hmm. The first act in Wales of this film that I just was shocked by this just this constant effort of movement and just very strained movement in the performances. They're just climbing up the hillsides, this sort of like sneaking around in the dark, unheard. And um that carries over when we go to Paris and you see images like Anne and Claude rowing the boats. Uh, there's, you know, sexual penetration, even the physical exhaustion that's portrayed as the characters write these letters to one another. And I thought for a movie that's kind of depicting love through the, the lens of youth, it was fairly violent in that expression, particularly for the character Muriel, who kind of just, I felt, kind of gets thrown through the ringer throughout this movie. And I, f- I find it interesting because I, th- I think so much of the film's emotion is suppressed, but when it does uh, extrovert itself, it's staged very dramatically. You know, when Anne reveals her affair with Claude to Muriel, she just vomits or the, the, the blood-stained sheets and the, the pain of that sequence. Even just her having her choose the choice to have her be someone that has this ice, this poor eyesight and that being sort of, uh, at least how I interpreted it, a, a physical reaction to her feeling so repressed and isolated within this environment. I don't think actually the melodrama worked very well. I found it quite jarring, especially the Muriel character. Uh, in those kind of episodes, the film was mostly very restrained. And then I guess those uh, moments were meant to kind of have some kind of emotional impact, but to me it had the opposite effect of just... Um, I found it slightly annoying. <laughs> so, for instance, when she confesses to, to masturbating, you just right. found that to be really over... Yeah. To be honest, when that was revealed, I f- found it quite jarring, just because there's nothing in the film prior to that that I think leads you in that direction. But I thought what was most shocking was his reaction. I mean, what's interesting about Claude's character, and what I think is interesting about the film, is how it uses narration and that sequence to me seemed to communicate that Claude is a person who values text over the individual person so he has to take this confession and turn it into some kind of object because that's what he does everything that he does to these these characters is he's objectifying them sure so he's just <laughs> His reaction to, oh, this would make an interesting pamphlet, and then cutting to a scene where he's reading the text very dryly to a woman who's not reacting to what's being written at all, just typing away, I thought mm. was uh, 
just very jarring in terms of how difficult it is for this character to the re- to reveal this about herself and how then that is uh the reaction met and yet here she is trapped in England like longing deeply for this person and he has he's he's not in love with her i mean that's the thing that's as a film that i guess if it's if its largest theme is love i mean it's it for these characters love is just it's an ideal it's and they and it's gotten to the point where they've overanalyzed it so much that there's no way it was ever going to to work because what they've imagined this thing to be is just it's impossible yeah i mean that's a sort of theme that goes through Truffaut's career isn't it like sort of like the inability of love like jules and jim obviously i think there's a lot of comparisons you could draw between the two films but personally i'm i prefer two english girls to jules and jim Really well, okay. And and I think it's because I see Jules and Jim as sort of a genre experiment. He's making these dramatic tonal shifts between comedy and tragedy. I feel like that movie is very much constructed and edited for irony. It's very disjointed, which I which I assume is what people admire about it. But as I watch it, I, I think where I consider Two English Girls to be a superior film in dealing with the same themes is that I think Jules and Jim captures the passage of time very poorly. The start of that film, World War I has not yet occurred, and by the end of it, World War II is beginning. And I never feel like, and perhaps this is the point, that those characters have aged or matured apart from Jules to some degree, but where the the letter-writing sequences in that film, where those fail, is that I think at a certain point they just stop revealing information. The, those characters aren't expressing any newfound feelings and ideas, and it stagnates the narrative, and then the whole film becomes repetitious. The other thing that bothers me about Jules and Jim is the character of Catherine, who I think is the most interesting part of that film, but I don't think Truffaut or even Moreau ever really figured out how to convince the audience why Catherine is so desirable to both of those characters and why we should empathize with her. Yeah, yeah, good point. I know he describes the film as being about two boys in love with their mother, which I think is true, but, I mean, you get Catherine's perspective in that film just through the letter writing sequences but for, for the large majority i feel like the viewer is in is placed within the perspective of both Jules and Jim and they judge her and they scrutinize and criticize her whenever she displays any kind of fallible quality as soon as she's anything less than a goddess to them she's described as being irrational so my feeling is even if Tr- Truffaut believes he is he has found a way to empathize with her. I don't think he's being empathetic enough in then keeping the audience from judging her. Then her actions at the end of the film, I I think it's hard to come out of that film and not judge her to a certain degree. Yeah, I think if you see this uh, this film as the reverse of Jules and Jim, I think the problem possibly with Jules and Jim and the character of Catherine is a sort of a sort of mild sexism, um, in the sense that Catherine. She's not a rounded character. Her actions are quite inscrutable. Um, she gets often like futile or childish, kind of the way she acts. Um, so by making that character 
uh, a male in this film kind of reverses that a wee bit. But do you do do you judge Claude as harshly as her? Um, I don't know. I guess maybe it's Truffaut also exploring the differences between sort of a European perspective and a sort of more repressed British uh, Victorian perspective towards love in this film. It's hard. I can't really comment on that very much because I'm neither British nor French. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think the de- the movie definitely does depict in this sort of Victorian era, era, I think it does depict in the cases of Anne and Muriel the way a woman can be repressed by society. Mm. Through that repression, I in, in both characters' sakes, how they deal with that. Because I think they both deal with that in vastly different ways. Yeah, going off of that, one problem I did seem to have with the film is I thought, although one of the best things about the film I thought was Jean-Pierre Leo, but I felt that he was possibly miscast here because I felt it jarring that his acting style compared with the more kind of stiff actresses of Anna Muriel, who had a more um, traditional style, whereas Leo has got a kind of rough naturalism. Which I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's just like I'm so I associate that so with the new wave and like sixties cinema. Seeing him in a like a sort of nineteenth century setting is a little strange. I don't know if you felt that at all. You felt he was he was rough in this. Well, it's not. I don't mean rough in a bad way. I just mean like his because he's obviously untrained as an actor. He's got a more modern style, which I felt was a little jarring. He's got this kind of quirkiness, which kind of juxtaposed not very well with the kind of more stiff British actresses. So that limited the film a little bit for me. Hmm. Um, I quite liked him. You're not saying you didn't like him. You're saying in contrast to... No, I think to... it was, it was the mo- the, one of the best things in the film, uh-huh. but um, I don't know if it was just overall that casting choices didn't quite work together. Um, it just felt like different eras kind of coming together and not and not kind of jailing hmm. very well i i think compared to the other films that i've seen him in he's fairly reserved hmm. but i wonder in what you're saying if that's uh if that's directly also born out of this situation of he being a wealthy frenchman and these girls too being very reserved their family doesn't seem in, to be incredibly wealthy hmm. Yeah, I guess well, another criticism we would have of the film, I, like, I just feel stylistically, it's very anonymous, directorially. I mean, I don't know if you'd watch this film and think that's a truthful film, if you didn't know. And I think there's a distinct kind of lack of style, which is kind of ironic with the fact that uh, Truffaut has been the, one of the main architects of a tour theory and putting your, the director, uh, directorial style at the heart of the film and telling stories from a personal point of view. I mean, Truffaut's career started strong, where he was kind of trying to do something different uh, with sort of modernist techniques and exploring form. But what I don't like about Truffaut, he, he became very conservative pretty quickly. One thing that just annoys me a little about Truffaut, I mean, he didn't, he didn't make bad films necessarily but um i just can't can't really fathom his mindset it became so conservative um it's just a a strange one um but if you but if you look at since you're bringing it up 
a certain tendency. Yeah. In the piece, he's attacking filmmakers and individuals who were adapting classic French literature literature at the time and showing little guard for it, regard for it as a text itself by turning it into a, a message films or films that were by nature political. Would you agree with that? Yes, and also uh, adapting the films but not maintaining the style of the original uh, novel, I believe, is one of his criticisms, and therefore you're not making cinema uh, and you're just making a lesser version of the text. Personally, I don't think it's a particularly well-written <laughs> piece of writing. Oh, no, yeah, it's hard to read, actually. It's like a bit of a rambling mess. But I do find it quite conservative in what it, what he's, what it values. I mean, basically, he's calling for a return to films that aren't influenced by the outside world. So he, he wants filmmakers to return to the traditions of Renoir and Orson Welles because that's what they've labeled as personal cinema. What I think is funny in relation to Two English Girls, even though I quite like the film, how much he seems to both have adopted the the approach that he's criticizing and he's also kind of abandoned the approach that he was promoting. I think I actually think indirectly at one point in the in the piece he mentions that vomit should not be seen on screen. And we get a very vivid de- depiction of of vomit in this film. And I mean it should be noted that this film it's post new wave. That movement has kind of dismantled after mm. 1968, I believe. Even before, I don't know. 67 maybe. You could even say like 65, I don't know. In terms of box office, it was uh, Godard's Le Carabinier, which flopped, and then commercially, the new wave was kind of over. Mm. Although the films that came after were still in that tradition. But um, I think one of Truffaut's ideas about the proper form of adaptation was use of narration. I think I saw an interview with him, and he's talking about how narration is good so that you can maintain the style of the text of the author, keep the good things about the the novel but you're also combine that with um, cinematic action so you don't just have a film where you have a lot of descriptive scenes mm-hmm. where characters just talking develop plot or whatever and so he, he's used narration throughout his career but um, to me I, I don't know if that's enough really to justify the position of a certain tendency because why not do like shoot the piano player is genius like that's a proper adaptation I don't know why he kind of felt that was too much it it almost became very cautious I think that failed at the box office as well shoot the piano player so I don't know if that had anything to do with um, his kind of future conservatism but even Jules and Jim the start of that movie is brilliant yeah Um, it's use of form and sort of cinematic form but to me, this the use of cinematic technique in this film is quite uh, is very poor. Uh, it's almost laughable. I found uh, just like the irises and stuff. I don't know if that's meant to be for slightly for comic effect. I don't think so. No, I don't know. no. <laughs> but I thought, oh my god, what's he doing? How do well? How do you feel about how he uses narration in in this film? It doesn't work that well. I mean, it's fine in Jules and Jim. Uh, in this film, I felt it was slightly jarring. It wasn't really necessary. 
Now, are you just speaking specifically about his narration, his voiceover, or because you also have the voiceover of Claude and Muriel as well? I guess the the objective one. During the credits, we hear Claude's voiceover. In that, he introduces that perspective immediately into the story, but that doesn't come up for a very long time, and he doesn't introduce Muriel's perspective, her narration, until about midway point into the film. So I wasn't keen on it because the narration, it it wasn't being told through Claude's perspective, but it was describing everything from Claude's perspective. Hmm. That changes when it's revealed that Muriel never sent any of her letters to Claude, which is a detail Claude would never know. So then I think what it at least allows Truffaut to do is it's able to shift the entire perspective of the rest of the movie. So what was Claude-driven suddenly becomes primarily Muriel-driven. Okay. The other thing I like about it, what's interesting about making it an unknown third party is I felt it made the events of the story uh, obtain this forbidden quality about them. It was as if someone was reading the diaries of these characters and then transcribing it into prose. So in that way, it, it does establish this theme of the past. You know, There's this n- nostalgia about it. So you said you didn't you didn't find the visual style of the film all that appealing? It was it was nice to look at, I guess, but it didn't really have a style in the as we would kind of consider an auteurist style. I don't know, it just looked like a like a like a classical like David Lean movie or a like a Merchant Ivory period drama, which is it, uh, that's kinda of fine in itself, but I didn't think it had an auteurist stamp on it, a director's stamp. It was photographed by Nestor Almendros, who yeah. uh, people probably best remember him for Days of Heaven. He did collaborate with Truffaut on nine films. Uh, I felt the way that this film depicted the Welsh... I, I think it should be said that I am not actually... I'm not a prescriber of auteur theory okay. all that much. Uh, I, I think it's not an exact science. It, it makes it difficult because... The way that they ap- apply auteur theory is to filmmakers that are great filmmakers. But auteur theory, theoretically, like in the way that it is described, Michael Bay is an auteur. Michael Bay directing a film that has a distinct visual style, it has a distinct set of politics. There is a singular voice throughout Michael Bay's career. So therefore, Michael Bay is, a, is an auteur. So I think the distinction is becomes difficult to to interpret. Yeah, well, my perspective on auteur theory is it's not a complete theory, but it's where I usually start, just because I have that kind of romantic view of the artist. I like to think that a work of art is the sole creation of the the individual, and that the best way to understand meaning in a film is through the director putting his ideas on the page or on the screen rather my question to this is and this is this is a a literary theory uh that cs lewis there's a great book that he wrote experimenting in criticism but he makes a distinction that with authorial intent there is what the author intended and what the film is so when you view a film do you view it the way that the filmmaker intended it 
or do you view it for what the film actually is? Because those two things could be completely different. Well, I guess the first time you view a film, you don't, you're maybe not sure what the director's intention is. I guess part of what would make it a good film is if the director's intention has come through, but then ultimately that's quite redundant because it's like, it becomes very simplistic. I guess my question is if uh, if you watched the film and you you didn't know what to make of it and then you went and you read interviews with that filmmaker that says this was the intention of what I was doing, do you just then take what the filmmaker intended as, well, that must be what the film is? Because a lot of times artists see their films or their work as one thing because they've had all these ideas of what these things mean. But if that is not communicated to the audience, then is that, in my opinion, if I have to listen to an interview or read an interview with a filmmaker to understand the intentions of a scene or a character, and and that in some way was not communicated in the film, then I view that as a a failure of their intent. Sure. Um, Well, it's a tough one because I don't necessarily reject the post-structuralist ideas that there's no set meaning and the audience interpretation is variable and not fixed, which is fine. But I think if an artist says, this is what my film is about, that should be respected. And then it becomes, okay, that's what it is. How well does it uh, achieve that goal? Hmm. I don't totally oppose auteur theory. It's just something yeah. that I think it's very ambiguous. But that... I feel like that's a a conversation that will just spin around in circles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But speaking about it, going back to the visual style, um, I thought how the film depicted the Welsh oceanfront was really be- beautiful. I thought how it captured uh, landscape and it being very angular. Everything, all those scenes kind of are set against the slopes. And because of that, he's able to create these these natural layers of depth by placing people on hilltops and in the foreground and then people down below in the in the background and the camera in those scenes isn't smooth because it's it's adhering to kind of like the labyrinth structure of those environments and it's it's one of the only true film films at least the scenes in Wales where I feel like landscape becomes a character which is is just a obsession of mine i I look for filmmakers to do that but it, it's i felt like it was a really perfect location for the characters to become entwined with each other it almost felt like at times like a shaggy english version of what the the garden of eden would have been in the bible and uh the use of color in contrasting the the nautical blues in england with the very the deep reds in paris I thought was very distinctive, and I also really liked. Uh, I felt like the whole film, from beginning to end, felt like it was set during the autumn season, and that's kind of an Almondro- Almondros staple, I think, to some degree. The diffuse sunlight, the layer of brown over everything, and I had I actually read somewhere that he had all the linens in the lingerie uh, soaked in tea prior to the production because he didn't want the whites to be too bright in the film. But I just, I thought it was, I know it's been described as impressionistic and I agree with that. And I I think beyond just its use of natural light in that way, what I found interesting in terms of being like a piece of impressionism is that 
like a lot of impressionistic paintings, uh, the settings in these films are primarily outdoors. They're by bodies of water, they're in gardens, or some kind of brush, and there's these cafes, and I don't know, I thought his use of uh, the mise-en-scene was interesting. And I think Truffaut is, in that way, he's harder to pin down because I think the way he uses it, it's in small details rather than in very broad, like, stylistic visuals. Or when you think of Brisson, like, Brisson is defined by his rigor. I, I think Truffaut is a is a filmmaker that cre- shapes these the visual landscapes of his movies through this the repetition like i mentioned the gesturing of the of the caressing of the cheek uh, i know he uses recurring character names a lot there's always mirrors in his sets uh i was reading an article that pointed out how oftentimes in all the apartments of characters he has picasso paintings the same P- picasso paintings on the walls now, I don't know how those details provide a, a greater context in understanding uh, his work, but there, I think that does create a certain singularity that is different from how you view like a filmmaker like Orson Welles or Stanley Kubrick in that way. I guess you're right, but I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's enough for me. Um, those kind of de- details are so subtle that I, I guess I expect more from Truffaut. Um, but why 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 is that? Is that because of his place in history and Yeah. Um it feels like he's almost regressing pre nineteen fifty nine to a more classical style. Mm. I mean, at this point you think Truffaut considers considers himself an auteur. It feels like he's almost taking himself out of the film with like the modernist flourishes of Shoot the Piano Player or Jules and Jim. He's kinda putting that behind him um, as a kind of childish experiment or whatever but Mm -hmm. um, I guess if it wasn't Truffaut my criticisms of the the direction wouldn't be as um, pronounced but um, I just can't see anything post Jules and Jim as sort of a letdown um, in terms of directorial style Now do you want to talk about Godard's criticism of Truffaut? Sure can do um I think well, some of the criticisms Godard had were that were probably motivated by bitter kind of personal resentments yeah. that that influenced like what he had to say about his films, but which I don't think is like I don't find that interesting to talk about just because from what I had read, Godard has kind of rebuked on those claims, like right. and yeah. called all that really idiotic. So mm. and and I don't know how to I mean. You're you're then when you get into that you're talking about someone's character and I don't know that sure. person so yeah well some of the harshest things he said was that Truffaut does not know how to make movies <laughs> he made one that really suited him and it stopped there so I'm looking at a quote here afterwards he did nothing but tell stories because he is incapable of inventing anything at all incapable of the least imagination he said about adapting books and it became more and more fake. Because it bore absolutely no relation to who he was. Yeah, which uh, I'm a bit of a good acolyte. So um, I don't want to just kind of ape his opinion, but it, it seems to, it makes sense to me. 
Well, do you think the is is the film that he says that he the the one film he made is he is he speaking about four hundred blows or is he speaking about yeah. Jules and Jim? I think oh I think it's four hundred blows. Um, obviously the most personal one of all his movies, but um, I think it, the fact that he did so many literary adaptations as well was kind of funny in a way, like because almost that's what he's rallying against. At the start, they think he would like try and do something that was purely his own creation. Can I ask, since you kind of agree with what what he says there, mm. is John Huston then? Is he not a filmmaker then? Thirty four of his thirty seven movies are adaptations. Stanley Kubrick, most of his films yeah. are adaptations. Well, Kubrick's a good one to talk about because he did mostly adaptations. But I think you can look at any Kubrick film, and you know it's a Kubrick film. Whereas, I don't know if that's true or true for. I think the criticism undermines, it undermines the value of, of the art of adaptation in relation to film. And and who is Godard to say that those novels do not hold personal value to Truffaut? And I, and I think yeah. even in those adaptations, there's, there is still a lot of formal repetition you don't agree, but I do think when I watch Two English Girls, that still feels like a Truffaut film to me. That feels like it's set in a Truffaut universe. So I get my issue that I take with criticizing him for adapting books is that I don't think what he says is specific enough. To say that, you have to then criticize how Truffaut approaches adaptation and that Truffaut chooses to adhere to novelistic structure rather than creating a structure specific for a film. Yeah, definitely. That's what I was going to say. I mean, if you look at uh, the adaptations Godard made, uh, like Band of Outsiders or Les Mépris, they don't feel like novels. They feel like movies. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, to me, this is Two English Girls is I would consider it a literary film. It feels like an adaptation of a novel. It doesn't feel like a film. It doesn't feel like a film? No. <laughs> See, the problem I have with this whole statement that he makes is I feel like it comes across as Godard criticizing Truffaut because he doesn't make films the way that Godard makes films. Yeah, well, I mean, there's maybe a tendency to define the new wave by Godard. But whereas he was the radical extreme from the start, almost like him and Ren- Alain René were way more radical than Truffaut, Eric Romoyer, Chabrol, um, who were always more traditional. I, but I did. I read a quote somewhere, and and I think this this speaks to how go, uh, Truffaut saw film. He says the idea isn't to create some some new and different cinema, but to make the existing one more true. It's about making art for beauty, art for others, art that consoles. Truffaut is not then a filmmaker that's looking to invent, as as Godard says that he doesn't invent, which I have to also then question, how many filmmakers really invent anything? Yeah, um, I guess so. it's maybe you should attempt, should attempt it, even if you can't succeed. I guess what what a... Kind of respect but I, I, I have Godard. to say, though, in that it's really easy for somebody like Jean-Luc Godard to say that, to criticize other filmmakers and say, you should invent even if you fail, because he has succeeded. Well, I think he succeeded up to maybe 68, but then he kept 
been more and more experimental with it. Like, I don't think he really ended cares about his movies after like weekends. Now they do. He's the yeah. he's the god of cinema. He's the prodigal <laughs> son. People can't get enough of it. Um, but I think if it, even like when Godard kind of returned to traditional narratives with um, uh, Every Man for Himself in 1980, um, it's still a it's not a conventional movie really. If you compare that to something with like Truffaut, like did in the 80s. Um, so I respect the fact he's still trying to uh, tread the uh, kind of walk the on rocky path rather than the the simple conventional one. Um, but I don't see I don't see what how one is how you place one above the other. Well, I guess I always have more respect for an artist who the first thing make a good piece of work. If it's a good piece of work that's something that's never been done before, then that deserves more respect than the the former. But what if something does things that have done but be- have been done before incredibly well? Yeah, that that's great. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with your saying. I'm just saying I think adhering to genre, conventional language, and successfully achieving that, I think that is worthy of praise and respect just as much as the person that's on the other side of the aisle shaking things up. Um, It does to an extent, yeah, but the person who pushes the boundaries is more important. They are expanding the universe for everyone. Well, that's just good art is God biased. now. <laughs> expanded the universe. <laughs> what did you think of the ending of this film? And the the epilogue. Uh, refresh my memory, sorry. Uh, uh, so he's in the the outdoor museum with the sculpt sculptures oh, and the right, okay. English girls running around him. D- does he see Muriel there? No, he's the voiceover is saying that he's he's looking to see which one of the girls is Muriel's daughter. All right. Um... I guess you didn't have it didn't didn't no. much of an impression on you at all. <laughs> I just like watching the clock at that point. Oh really? Doing. But uh, um, no, I don't know. Um, it didn't really have an impact, I guess. Uh, like the film really had nothing to say for me. Couldn't really get a lot out of it. Um, so um, did the ending have anything to? Did it, did it work for you to? Yeah, I found it really. I found it really right. moving. Uh. An interesting sort of visual theme that exists throughout the movie is uh, the way that statues play a role in the story. Okay. And being a sculptress, there's a scene where they're playing the sculpture game in the yard. And I think Anne and Claude spend time in a museum surrounded by sculptures, which is when she takes the cane away from him. And then you have the end where you have... uh, him walking past the sculpture of Balzac and the kiss. And I think I, I was looking, I was reading about the kiss and I started to think that maybe the, the quality of that, of that sculpture, the, this articulation of a single gesture, I wondered if it in some way, maybe it had an impact on the aesthetic pro the aesthetic approach, um, that dictated how Truffaut staged the love scenes throughout the movie. Because it's okay. when Claude and Anne make love, the camera depicts those moments from, from a certain distance, and we aren't really ever privy to 
there's facial expressions. Their arms are always wrapped around each other, and they're kind of, by nature, they're concealing those ex- expressions. In in reading about that sculpture, uh, it's apparently it's an illustration of two characters from Dante's Inferno, where a man realizes his love for his sister-in-law, and the the tragedy of it is that in the moment where they express this to one another, his brother enters and then stabs them both. Which I think could kind of be interpreted in the case of this film as being sort of thematically thematically relevant to a certain degree in whatever the scenario with Anne and Claude or, or Muriel and Claude in that these relationships that these characters have, it's always going to be interrupted by the third member that is absent or... Even when Anne and Claude are together, Muriel is still very present in that relationship. But I I think also the statues at the end, they reflect how Claude has been sort of stuck in time. Ever since the death of Anne and then uh, Muriel denying him, he's just been stuck in that moment. So that line reading when he says, I look old today, it was almost like this rude awakening. He finally woke up and recognized how much time had passed since he last saw them. But it also reveals that over this last like 15 years, he hasn't changed at all. He's still like seeking the love for these two characters. Do you have any thoughts on how he portrays sort of the, the feminine perspective in this film, how his, how he treats his female characters and, I guess kind of like depicts their their sexuality. I guess it's more of a understanding of the female position. I guess mm-hmm. just the fact that it reverses the the sexes. Um, understanding maybe the wrong word. Sympathetic. I guess. Um, I don't know. That well, the fact that they're kind of both quite sexually repressed. I don't know if it's. Uh, a woman would say that has a lot to say about the the female condition or female sexuality, but um, it's maybe troublesome the fact that they both kind of fall in love with the same guy, like the first guy they meet. But then Anne moves past that, I guess. I think there have been accusations of like maybe slight misogyny through Truffaut's career, but um, I thought a lot of that kind of reflects his own relationships with women. Like he had a sort of womanizing streak i believe well i I did read that uh his decision to have Anne die that's not in the novel and that was actually a choice that he made because a lot of how he characterized the two characters was based off of Catherine deneuve and her sister and her sister died in a car accident a couple years prior when he was in a relationship what's interesting about this film apparently he at the time of when he went into production on this film, he was under medical supervision supervision, because he had just been released from a psychiatric clinic, having been treated for depression because his relationship with Catherine Deneuve had ended. Okay. What I thought was interesting about his portrayal of sexuality, I think you mentioned earlier how how it explores it through the char- these two these two characters and how differently they they sort of shed that repression whereas Anne is kind of impulsive and more free spirited she just wants to have like 
several sexual experiences. While Muriel, who, when she did open up sexually, she was being told to keep that a secret. That is, she is repressing that. And then that, that moment almost entirely informs her sexual psychology for the rest of the rest of her life. And then when she writes that letter to, um, the Christian church that I think is like in Little Rock, Arkansas or something like that, which I thought was great. Their response to her, I think that it, it just articulates how complicated her nature as a sexual person is. And I, I think it, because she's essentially been told to deny her body. Mm. I, I think Muriel has a very Christian view of what love is. That this idea that you you can love someone, but you don't love them for like a selfish reason. So you don't indulge in like sexual desire because you, you love them, but you love God and you're honoring God. Whereas Claude, it's entirely his, his, his interest in love is a, a, is a a totally selfish one. So I, I'm assuming that there's, that's the conflict and that's expressing something. I mean, thematically, I'm not, I don't have a concrete understanding on what the film is saying about the nature of love. I think that's yeah, difficult um, to do. And I, I don't – it doesn't bother me that the movie maybe doesn't come to a, a clear, distinct answer regarding that because I don't – I think that's a theme that you can't – that's not a black and white sort of thing. It's more ambiguous. Yeah, what I do kind of respect about Truffaut's films in that regard, um, I do agree with his position that it's about that desire maybe for monogamy but the impossibility of that and just that those kind of circular sort of relationships. Um. Well, I think what's uh, interesting about the Antoine Donnell f- films, they kind of, I think, more overtly express the sentiment that in order for a relationship to be successful, it has to move beyond just this like youthful ideal of love, this lust in mm. a way. It, it's important that you respect the person that you're in a relationship with. Mm. And I think that's kind of where the dilemma between Claude and Muriel is at the end is that he's in love with the idea of Muriel being this like virginal figure. That was how I interpreted when he, he goes to see her in Paris and she kind of throws herself at him. He doesn't know how to react because his entire uh, kind of makeup of who she is has suddenly been challenged. She's no longer Mm -hmm. like this. She's not acting as like this pure repressed Christian English woman anymore. Now she's almost adopting, you know, Anne's behavior in a way. Mm -hmm. I also like that there's these scenes um, that are kind of voyeuristic or at least they kind of have that, that secretive quality where, you're given access to moments that are very private, like especially with Muriel. I think uh, her scenes where she's talking to herself on the hill, rehearsing what she wants to say to Claude, and then in the following scene, you see Anne giving Claude a letter, and then you see later the her you hear her inner voiceover in the chapel, or when she's praying, or even her confession. There are very private moments and very private admissions that we get exposure to it almost felt like the audience as the audience you're violating this woman's privacy yeah 
if I had to criticize the film for something, I thought the opening image when Claude's reaching for an apple and falls, having seen the film later in retrospect, was maybe a little too pointed, uh, like thematically. Right. And he falls onto grass, but he hurts his leg. I thought that was a bit silly. Well, there's an interesting uh, section in that companion to Truffaut that breaks down that scene shot by shot. Okay. And it uh that sequence has like thirteen cuts in it or something. Which right. is completely contrary to the rest of the film. It's the only sequence in the film that is cut so rapidly and he breaks down the spatial delineation very specifically, where you have the mother, the children, the rope, Claude, Claude in the air, Claude on the ground, mother reacting, children reacting, mother getting up, running a uh very like extensive and it seemed to it's sort of like initiating Claude's transition from boyhood to manhood in a way. Okay. That culminates then when Anne takes the cane away from him in right. the the museum and that being a moment where he's no longer under the protection of his mother. He's doing something without her and he's kind of now become uh free. Mm. That's interesting. I I never noticed that there were so many cuts in that section. Um, so that kind of um, like verifies the idea that at this point Truffaut is not about reflexivity and showing film form, film technique up front. So he's like inviting, sort of hiding it in the kind of Hitchcock sense mm-hmm. traditionally. Out of five jive turkeys, how many are you going to give two English girls? I'll go for two. I will give it four and a half. I just can't help but be disappointed. But is it because you're going into them with a certain expectation of what you think they will be? Because he's associated with these other filmmakers, are you thinking he's more aligned with their sensibilities? With himself. His earlier works, which are great, but any artist usually gets worse as they age. But um, as long as I kind of trying to do something... I kind of respect that, but um, I feel like it just kind of decided to be, yeah, as I've kind of said, it became really conservative. But then again, maybe that's reading Truffaut in the wrong way because maybe this is a real Truffaut. The modernist Truffaut was never really him. So that's our show for this week. Please be sure to tune in next episode when we discuss Lucio Fulci's 1984 horror film Murder Rock. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on Murder Rock or contact us with any general feedback, you can send an email to filmjive at gmail.com. And be sure to stay in touch by following Filmjive on Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep on jiving. <laughs>